and you all can be seated. You can open up your Bible to the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1, some of the first verses, or some of the verses from that first chapter of 1 Peter this morning. Uh, wanted to say a special welcome to you uh, if you're a college student. I know college uh, j- just started up here locally. Some I know went home for Labor Day, but if you're a college student, either it's your first year or this is your first time, maybe you're a returning student, it's your first time with us. We're especially grateful you're here. I want to encourage you on the back of the program you got, uh, we have a welcome section, an information section for anybody who's newer to the church, but there's a QR code there if you're a college student. Uh, if you want to uh, follow that. So there's a simple, simple form that you could fill out uh, that would help us to know who you are and follow up with you as you're getting acclimated or reacclimated to college life. Uh, we'd love to get to know you and help you to see if CCC might be a church home for you. So I'd encourage you uh, to follow that. But welcome to you. Uh, this is not a quiz to either puff you up if you know the answer or to embarrass you if you don't know the answer. Uh, but I think there is a part of what Christians call the Great Commission uh, that we often forget. We're f- very familiar with certain parts of it, and then there's a part of it near the end that we often forget. And I'm, I'm curious how many of us actually know this. So we're very familiar with this part where Jesus, after he's been raised from the dead, he assembles his apostles there on this mountain and gives them this command. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We're very familiar with that. Then he continues, he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We're probably very familiar with that. And I'm curious if we know what comes next. There's another command that Jesus gives to his disciples. What is the next command? If you know it, just say it out. Anybody? Okay, some of you got it. It's a long phrase. I should have just gone for what's the next word. Uh, so he said, yeah, the next phrase. So some of us know this, but I think we often forget it, even if we know it. He, said, he doesn't just say, go make disciples, baptize them. But the next thing he says, next thing out of his mouth is he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That is part of the commission that Jesus gives to his people. It's not just to go tell the good news, tell them about the cross, tell them about the resurrection, tell them how forgiveness can be granted to them, and not just even then to baptize them and give them an opportunity to identify with him publicly, but he says right up front, teach them to do what I've said. That's part of becoming a disciple of Jesus. It's part of helping someone else grow as a disciple of Jesus. It's teaching them to do things that Jesus has commanded. Teaching them to live the ways that Jesus has commanded. And this morning we're going to look at this value that we're going to call godliness. That appears all over the place in the New Testament. Sometimes using different words like holiness or obedience, sanctification, things like that. Um, But we've been going through a series of sermons. We're up to the fifth one of seven today that we're calling values. We're trying to take just seven weeks out of our normal routine of going through a book of the Bible and we're picking different texts uh, these seven weeks to talk about and use these texts to guide us in what we want to have be seven values that mark us as a church family. Seven distinctive things that should be just shot through everything we do as a church family from worship gatherings to prayer gatherings to classes to life groups to youth groups to children's ministries to ministries that we have in the community and around the world. Seven values that we want to mark us. And thus far we've seen the four that we've seen thus far grace truth love and last week's was family 
Uh, this fifth one, this fifth value of seven that we're going to talk about today, we're just titling godliness. Uh, we want to be a church that is growing in godliness, that's marked by godliness, that's marked by obedience in our private lives, our public life together. And so we're going to come today to a text from 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to read from verses 13 down through 19. So we're going to kind of stop midway through a paragraph for the sake of time. But these are wonderful words from the Apostle Peter to a group of early Christians uh, who, if you're familiar with this letter at all, and you can even scan your eyes back up through the beginning of the letter, he's writing to Christians who are suffering, uh, who are experiencing persecution, who are starting to have to be even scattered around different parts of the world. He's writing to them. If you even look back at verse 6, he talks about how they have been grieved by various trials. So he's writing to these early Christians who are suffering, who are experiencing trial, and this is what he calls forth from them. This is at least part of what he calls forth in response uh, to the grace of God. This is what he writes to them and that we hear now by the Spirit given to us. So follow along with me, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 down through 19. Apostle Peter wrote this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This is the word of the Lord. What a powerful text. Uh, I'm going to try to do justice to it. I trust that the Spirit will help us to understand what Peter is saying, then uh, help us understand and feel the relevance, the significance of this text and texts like it should have upon our lives as individuals and as a church. If you, if you look at the beginning of what Peter says here, he, he starts, at least in this section of the letter, he starts by pointing these early Christians to the future, by pointing them ahead in time, not to look beyond their present struggles and to look to the future, right? He says at the end of verse 13, the second half of it, he says, to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the first thing Peter does here is he's pointing the eyes and the hearts and the minds of these Christians ahead in time to what he calls the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, what he's talking about is the return of Jesus. Jesus right now is in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and someday he is going to return to, to raise the dead, to judge the living and the dead. And Peter is pointing these early Christians ahead in time to that day and says to set their hope fully on the grace that will be brought to them that day. And so he, he doesn't want their hope as Christians, and this isn't going to be the main point of what we get at today, but it's a theme throughout First Peter. He doesn't want Christians' hopes to be set on the removal of suffering right now, uh, to, to be released from trial and, and sufferings and pains right now. He, I don't think he would be anti-praying for that, but he wants them more than that to even set their hope fully on what will be given to them. What, the grace that will be shown to them at the return of Jesus. That's where he's setting their ultimate hope and confidence in the Lord, in the future. 
But then he calls, and this will get into the heart of today's message into this text. And when he gets to verse 14 and 15, he calls them, after he said, hey, look to the future. Set your hope fully on what will come in the future. He returns back to the present tense and gives them some commands about how to live right now, ways to function right now. Uh, And he calls forth holiness in them. Calls forth obedience. Holiness, godliness, there's somewhat synonyms. There's some overlap, a big overlap of that Venn diagram of holiness and godliness. He's calling forth holiness or godliness from them in the present, right? If you look at verse 14, first he kind of gives the negative command, right? He says, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. He's saying there used to be this way that you live, these passions within your flesh, within your spirit that you used to follow after before you knew Christ. He's saying, do not be conformed to those passions. Don't give in to them. Don't go back to that way of life. You need to stay away from that. Those are things you've been bought out of, right? Those are things you've been delivered from. But then he gives this positive command in verse 4 and 15, right? He says, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, You also be holy in all your conduct. That may sound very foreign to some of our ears in modern day America, to be holy in all our conduct. I think we hear the word holy sometimes in church circles, but we don't often know what it means or what it's getting at. And it's important that we do know what this word means, right? If that's what Peter is saying is be holy as God is holy, then what is holiness, right? What what is it? Holiness is... It, it's a hard thing to describe. It's a hard thing to pin down. My, my best stab at it, my best attempt at it would be that it de- is describing absolute moral purity. Absolute moral purity. That's what holiness is. That it's this perfection of, of moral goodness that is present in God. It, it means other things, but I think that at the core of it is what holiness is. This absolute moral purity. And Peter is saying to be that in all your conduct. Be morally pure. Be morally good, ethically good in all of your conduct. And this is a holiness, I would note for us, that has to do with actual things we do. Not just ideas we have and ways we think, but actual actions, actual think behaviors, actually actual patterns of life, of conduct, right? He says to be holy in all your conduct or that may mean like lifestyle all the ways that you live your life you are to be morally pure morally obedient and your thought not just your thoughts not just your sentiments not just your aspirations but your actual actions are to be obedient to God and this is important for us to hear as Christians because the gospel sometimes we think of purely as a message this good news of how we can be forgiven which it is. May we never, ever, ever compromise on that. That the gospel is this good news of how we can be forgiven, how we can be reconciled to God. But it is more than that too. It's also a message of how we can be made into new people who live in a new way, who are restored back to how God made us to live in the first place. It is to affect our conduct. It's to affect the actual way that we live. And I know that's stating the obvious, but sometimes we forget that. And, Paul, and Peter says, to be holy, I would note this, verse 15, in all your conduct. The holiness that, that the gospel brings forth in us, this message of Jesus brings forth in us, isn't just a message that, that should change us just in certain parts of life. 
just in certain domains that, okay, if I can just avoid maybe the top 10 list of sins that I think are particularly grievous, then I'm good. Like I've, I've reached holiness if I avoid those things or I do these particular things. He is saying in all of your life, you should live a life of holiness. Every single dimension of it, every part of it should be marked by holiness. All your conduct should be holy. And then Peter, I appreciate this because he doesn't just stop by saying, be holy, and period. Like he offers reasons, he offers motivations, he offers things that should compel us to be holy, should compel us towards godliness in our life. He frames it in certain ways. And I want to point out three of those briefly from this text of, of ways, things that Peter is pointing these Christians to and the Spirit would point us to to say, remember these things to compel you towards godliness, to help you move towards godliness in all your conduct. And this is important because our behaviors come from somewhere, don't they? We are not robots. We are not animals, right? We, we don't just operate purely on instinct. We have reasons as human beings that we do what we do, that we don't do what we don't do, right? There, there's things that motivate us and compel us, and Peter's trying to tap into those things. If you look even at verse 13, some of your translations may say this slightly different. Some of yours may say in like Old English, like, gird up your mind for action, or mine says to prepare your mind for action. It's like Peter is reminding them there's things you need to remember to act the right way. If you're going to actually behave in a godly way, live a life of godliness, there's things you need to remember, things you need to call to mind. And the first thing you see in this text that Peter points to to motivate godliness would be what I would describe as the character of God. The character of God himself is something that Peter points to, right? He says this in verse 15. He says, he starts, he doesn't just say, be holy in all your conduct. He says this, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in, your con in all your conduct, right? Then he turns it around again, verse 16, and he quotes Leviticus chapter 11 and says, since it is written, this was God speaking back in the days of Leviticus to his people, you shall be holy for I am holy. Like Peter is, is right around that command, be holy in your conduct, he's reminding them, God is holy, God is holy, you be holy. That, that's, the, that's one of the reasons to compel godliness and holiness is because God himself is holy, right? Uh, this had been since the days of Leviticus, since the days where they, the people of Israel out Mount Sinai. God had set this precedent of you be holy, you be obedient in your life because I am morally good. I am, not that God could be disobedient to himself. He's the one who defines goodness, right? But he's saying I am holy, you as my people need to become holy holy, right? That's why Peter says here at the start of four, verse 14, he says that we should be obedient children, uh, that we are his children if we've been saved into his family, which we talked about last week. We should be not just children of God, but obedient children of God. The children, sons and daughters who are actually doing what he says to do, who are seeking to live the way that he calls us to live, to live the way that God himself lives. So the first pointer, the first motivation that Peter gives is the character of God himself, that, that he is holy, and let that compel you towards holiness. Let that compel us to holiness. And I so appreciate this because sometimes when we think of holiness and godliness, we tend to just think of being taught how awful and evil ungodliness is, and just have that drum beat over and over again, is how bad this is, how awful this is, don't do that, this is terrible, this is horrible, and we need to hear that, right? Right? But 
Peter first is giving a positive aspiration, a positive vision of holiness and what holiness is like and saying, first look to the character of God and what he is like and let that compel you to become more like him. Uh, Don't just hear how shameful and evil and awful these things are, although that is true, but also have a compelling vision of goodness, godliness that you can follow after. And that is how we work as human beings, right? When we see goodness in a person, especially if we've been born again. There's something that's compelling about that in us that motivates us. I want to be like her. I want to be like him. When we see a picture of holiness, it's something that God uses to motivate us toward that end. And Peter first gives them the example of that in God himself. Look at his actions. Look at how he has operated throughout all of time and eternity. He is a holy, holy, holy God, right? Like Isaiah 6. And so the first thing that should compel us towards holiness is God's holiness, the character of God. But the second thing you see in this text that should motivate us, that Peter's trying to get to motivate us towards godliness in our lives, is not just the character of God, but, and this is a, one we maybe not think of often, is the judgment of God. That's something that should compel us towards godliness, should compel us towards holiness. And where you see that in this text is in verse 17, right? So again, he's going to say to them, conduct yourselves with fear. He's talking about their life. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. He's talking about the hardships that they're going through, their time of exile in this world. He's saying how they should conduct themselves. But he starts that verse, verse 17, with a statement before, right? He says, If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Right? And so he is pointing them, just like he did at the start of verse 13, he's pointing them to the future, to the judgment of God, to the God who judges justly, who the God who judges impartially according to each person's deeds. Peter's using that in his logic to compel godliness and that may seem strange to us because it could feel when we read this verse it could feel like peter is saying hey there's judgment coming someday god's going to judge us according to our deeds you better get your act together so that you receive a good judgment from god that's how it could feel when you read that right is that hey there's this god who's going to judge get ready for that judgment you better get a good clean record before you go face him that's how we could read that text if we're just reading it quickly not considering other things that peter says that paul says that jesus himself says as they talk about the judgment of god because i want to point out to you peter is not trying to tell early christians and would not try to tell us today to do that to try to earn god's favor to try to to say hey there's a judgment seat that's i'm going to face someday i need to get myself ready to get an a or a d minus at least if i so i can pass like that's that's not what god or what peter is calling them to do i would point you to clarify this look at back at verse 13 right He had told them about the return of Jesus, which is when judgment will take place. And I want you to note very clearly the word in verse 13, grace. Like he says to set, to these Christians, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He he wants them to remember that any any good uh, judgment that comes to them, any blessing, any favor of God that comes at the judgment seat, at the return of Jesus, is an act of grace. It is undeserved, 
right? That's how that paragraph starts. So he can't be saying, as he's telling them to look to the future and the judgment that's going to come, he can't be saying, you need to earn God's approval. You need to earn God's thumbs up. You need to earn that A uh, or D minus or whatever from God. He, he's told them that if you receive favor, it will be of grace. And what I think he is getting at when he says, when he's trying to remind them that their heavenly father judges impartially according to each one's deeds is this because Peter is not the only one that Paul says this several times in the New Testament that God judges according to our works according to our deeds I would note that he says that God judges in accordance or according to each one's deeds not on the basis of their deeds if that makes any sense Uh, Sometimes we think, when we think of the judgment of God, we think, God is going to judge me on the basis of my good works. That I I bring this resume to him, and now he evaluates it, and he looks back at it, and either gives me thumbs up or thumbs down. That's how we tend to think of the judgment being... But he doesn't say that God will judge us on the basis of our good works. He says that he will judge us according to our works. According, that they're, they're with, and I think what he's getting at, what Paul is getting at repeatedly in the New Testament is this, that if there is a good judgment of God upon a person, a gracious judgment of God upon a person, any of us in this room, myself included, at the end of time, there will be in his typical providence, there will be a life of good works that have come with that. Right? That, that you will have lived as a different person, that the Spirit of God has changed you as a person and your life will start to reflect it. That the, whether you have a month of it or a year of it or a decade of it or 50 years of it, there is going to be deeds that start to come in your life. There's going to be godliness that starts to show in your life that didn't show before. And when you come to the judgment seat of God, God will judge you not on the basis of those good works, but in accordance with those works. Right? That, that you, your works will demonstrate, they'll, they'll provide evidence that you really have been united with Christ, that you really have been born again. And it should, it should startle us. It should, it should humble us. It should sober us. If we look at our life and we don't see good works, we don't see godliness, we don't see a growth, we don't see a pursuit of holiness in our life, that I think Peter would want us to, to know, man, there should be good deeds in your life. There should be godliness that's starting to manifest itself in your life if you're really united with Christ. And, Paul, and Peter is pointing them to that future judgment of God, saying there will someday be a judgment according to our deeds. Not on the basis, but according to them. And so we should seek to live a life that has evidence, that, has, that demonstrates that the Spirit of God is at work in me. Third thing, and this is most important, as far as motivations towards godliness, would not just be the character of God or the judgment of God. But the third thing that Peter drives at to motivate godliness would be the sacrifice of Christ. That is the, the core of what I think he gets at in this text is to compel godliness is the sacrifice of Christ. And I get this from verse 18 and 19. As he continues this sentence where he just called them to conduct themselves with fear throughout the time of their exile. Verse 18 he says this knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
as he calls them to obedience, as God calls us to obedience today, he is wanting us to remember that we were bought at an infinitely high price. When he uses this language of you were ransomed, we know what ransom means in our culture. It's this, this buying in a sense that this, there's this high price that comes to receive something or someone back, right? He's saying that we were ransomed. If we're believers who are united with God, reconciled to God, he's saying we were ransomed from feudal ways that we inherited from our forefathers. Those ways of trying to live obediently to get God's approval, to get God's favor. That What we sang about earlier, how we uh, work our fingers down to the bone, but nothing we did could ever atone like that. That type of language. He says, you were ransomed from that way of life. You were, ran- you were bought out of that attempt to try to reconcile yourself to God. And he says the way you were actually bought out of that, bought out of your slavery to sin, and bought out of your guilt is by the precious blood of Christ. Like, I don't even know how, to, I struggle to even have words to describe the, how valuable the blood of Christ is. That it is the very life source for him as the incarnate son of God. And Peter says that you, if you're a Christian, you were bought at the price of his blood. You were bought at the price of his life upon the cross. What happened at the cross is so significant. Our, our sins, if we're the people of God, was transferred to Jesus. Our guilt, our shame was placed upon Christ, the innocent Son of God. And he suffered in our place. He suffered in your place. He suffered a brutal, awful death at the hands of humans. But worse than that, he suffered the judgment of God the Father on our behalf. The wrath that should be coming down upon us. That was the price to buy you back. That was the price to buy you out of your slavery to sin, to buy me out of the slavery that I had to sin, was the death, the very life of Christ being given up for us. And Peter is saying, remember that. When you're tempted to live a life of disobedience or disregard or apathy or sluggishness and and don't pursue godliness at all, remember the price that was paid for you. Like... And to know, I think what he's getting at in saying that is that Christ didn't just die to gain you forgiveness, but to gain you forgiveness and new life, to make you into a new person. Like, remember what he died, and the, the, what he died to gain for you is much more than just a transactional forgiveness of your sins, but to make you into a new person who actually does now live for God, who lives as a new creation, who lives as a new person. Charles Spurgeon, if you, if you know me, you know I quote him often. Uh, he's, I've used this quote before, but I think it's so good. He said, There is no motive for holiness so great as what streams from the veins of Jesus. There is no motive for holiness so great as what streams from the veins of Jesus. If you're wanting a motivation to live a life of holiness and to pursue that, don't just listen to your mom telling you to be a better Christian. Don't just listen to to the world saying, this is right, this is wrong, or other Christians saying, this is right, this is wrong. You need to hear those things, but you need to know more than that, that Christ died for you. Like Christ gave his life for you, and you belong to him now. Like you are to live, you're to become a slave to him, a servant to him now. You are not just bought at that infinitely high price to live for yourself. 
to just live a life how you want to live, how you see fit to live. You were bought by him and you belong to him. And the blood of Christ, the death of Christ, should compel you towards godliness. It should compel us towards godliness. And so there's those three reasons, the character of God, the judgment of God, the sacrifice of Christ that Peter is pointing to to motivate godliness, to compel holiness in the life of God's people. But I want to take a few minutes and think, what does it look like for a church, for a, a church full of individual Christians even, to be holy, to be godly in the way that we live our lives, okay? I think if you did, if you've been around our community, you've been around our church for very long, I, I think you would agree with this, that if we were to do a poll in our community of, hey, what you know of Christ's covenant church, like what would you say are some of its highest values, highest markers, it's, it's the things that they value the most there? I think you would probably find on a short list that people would say, use descriptors like, well, it's a teaching church, or that they really value doctrine, that they really value theology, that they dive deep into text, they dive deep into subjects. And I, that I think that they would say those types of things. It's a doctrinally rich church. And I am not embarrassed of that. I am proud of that. Like, I think that is a beautiful, wonderful thing. But what I hope is that in the years to come is that alongside of that, not just that we're the second value, of, we talk about grace and truth, that was our second value. But my hope and prayer would be that as years continue to roll by, that we would increasingly be known as a church marked by holiness, by godliness in the way that we live our lives privately and collectively and in our world, in our community. That we would be a church that is known by, man, they're this confounding mix of doctrinally rich and practically holy. That they, they love the pursuit of godliness and, and, and service of each other and service of the world. But what will that take? Well, if that's to be, if that's to become an increased marker of us as a church, what would it take? I want to point out two things deriving from this text, but branching out into broader New Testament and really all scriptural principles of what it would take for that to happen is two things. One is going to be to pursue godliness in your own life, pursue godliness yourself. And the second one is going to be to promote godliness in each other to pursue godliness for yourself and to promote godliness in each other. And I want to share a few thoughts of what uh, I think that that can look like based on God's word. This idea first of pursuing godliness yourself and your own life is an important thing. It's a vital thing uh, for us to do as Christians. It is not even an optional thing. For us as Christians, like we are called to be holy from this text today. If you're a Christian, you are called to be holy. Not just to want to be holy or to know that holiness is a good ideal, but to actually strive to become holy, to become godly in your life. And this starts at conversion. This starts, no matter if you're a young kid or you're an adult, when you initially come to faith in Christ, that's when this process of becoming more holy starts. It's not just something that kicks in when you become an adult or when you become a really serious Christian or something like that. When we baptize people, we've started doing this recently, where we ask them questions, where we ask them, uh, do, these are two of the questions we ask people when they're about to be baptized as a disciple of Jesus. We ask them first, we say, do you forsake yourself, sin, and Satan? Do you forsake yourself, sin, and Satan? And then the second question that we ask after that is, do you intend with God's help to obey Jesus' teaching and follow him as your Lord? 
Those are two things that we ask, and if you're to be baptized, we would ask you, is do you forsake yourself, your sin, and even Satan? And then do you pledge, do you intend with God's help to obey Jesus and to do what he says, to actually obey what he commands us to do? That starts at conversion, but then it's something that should continue. This pursuit of godliness should continue throughout our life until we go to be with Christ or he comes to be with us. Another text I thought about preaching today, uh, but shows this one instead. Another text, a very simple one, is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. I'd encourage you to, to chew on that, meditate on that verse. Paul, the Apostle Paul in that text, wrote to Timothy and said, train yourself for godliness. Or some of yours might say, discipline yourself for godliness. Uh, what he was calling forth from Timothy and from us who would read it is to, act, the same guy who wrote that, train yourself for godliness, wrote the re- a lot of the other New Testament texts that talk about how the Spirit works godliness in us, how it's a gift of God to us. Paul wrote that stuff too, and I don't ever want to neglect that. The Spirit of God has to work in us. He's the one who grows godliness in us. In us. But that same guy wrote, train yourself for godliness. He was unashamedly saying that if godliness is going to become true in your life, if you're going to grow in holiness and godliness, it is going to come, humanly speaking, through effort. Tomorrow is Labor Day, right? Which ironically, we often don't labor on Labor Day, uh, but we celebrate work tomorrow in the workforce and in society. We need to value, I, I would say, sanctified work, sanctified labor within the church to actually grow in godliness. Because if we don't labor toward that end, it's not going to happen. Like it, godliness, we quote this often, I don't even know who said it, but we don't drift towards godliness right? We don't just drift towards holiness. We have to set our sails toward it. We have to pursue it. Like we, we discipline, we train ourselves for godliness, right? And the, I would encourage you to do some thinking on how to actually do that, to act, how to actually grow in godliness. There's uh, two books I would definitely recommend for further study on this. One we have, we actually have both of these in our church bookstore. One is called The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges, Excellent, excellent book. Uh, that's a wonderful resource that, that calls us to pursue holiness and gives ideas of how to do it. The other is a book called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by Don Whitney. Uh, those are both excellent resources to try to give you guidance more than what I could in a, a sermon of how you actually try to do that. What does it look like to actually train myself for godliness, to pursue that in my own life? They're going to call you to basic things, not rocket science, but to getting God's word into you, to read reading it, hearing it read, memorizing it, meditating on it, listening to it be taught, those types of things. But then to be prayerful, to be disciplined in prayerfulness as a Christian. They're going to encourage you to fast at times, which is just a revolutionary idea to many of us as Christians. They're going to encourage you to be involved in community and in worship. So they're going to encourage all these disciplines that are God-given means of grace to help us grow in godliness. And if we don't pursue those things, we're not going to attain them. That's how God has set up his economy of, of growth and godliness is that we train ourselves toward it. That, that he works it in us, but he also uses our effort, our pursuit of it to bring it to fruition. And so it requires effort and evaluation. And I'd encourage you, if, if you do, would do this, I think this would be a valuable exercise for anybody to do, is to take some time today or tomorrow if you're off work to try to do an assessment of your life and where you sense a need to grow in godliness. 
Uh, where do you see a deficiency of character? Where do you feel temptation? Where do you feel weakness? Where do you feel vulnerability? I mean, I indulge in this far too often. Or I, I, can, I just lash out in this way. Or I'm lazy in this way. Like, try to take some inventory of your life uh, to evaluate where has sin crept back in? What are those former passions that I'm giving into again? And, and identify those things and then try to, to make a game plan of how do I think I can, how by God's help can I grow in this? Can I actually pursue holiness in this realm of life? Whose help could I pursue? What things could I read? What text could I try to meditate on? It And how could I be prayerful? And if you don't even know where to start with that, a couple of texts that could be good to kind of become a mirror for you to evaluate your godliness, read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you aren't convicted when you read that, read it again. Like, keep reading it. Like, Jesus wanted us to feel the weight of conviction when we read that, but then feel compelled to a higher godliness, to a, a more spirit-filled pursuit of godliness. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Read the, the lists that, that are throughout the New Testament where especially... Paul does this, where he lists these vices and virtues, these struggles of the flesh and these fruits of the spirit. Read those and really slowly meditate on where am I seeing these vices in my life and where am I seeing this lack of virtue in my life? And if you still are having trouble, ask one of your friends. Like they could probably tell you. Ask your husband or wife. Ask your kids. They could help you lovingly, I trust, graciously. Uh, know where there's areas that you need to grow. And then you need to pursue godliness in those areas. We all need to pursue godliness in those areas. So we should pursue godliness ourselves. But the second thing I said I'd mention is that we need to promote godliness in each other. Is so important because, yes, we train ourselves for godliness, but we are vital to each other's growth in godliness. If we're going to actually become more obedient, it's going to be through the help, through the aid of fellow Christians. And we should be the givers of that to each other and the receivers of that from each other, right? If we're to really grow in godliness, it does not happen alone. And I just generally speaking, I would say this, that there should not be areas of our life, there should not be areas of your life that are off limits for other Christians to ask about or to talk about. I think sometimes we tend to think of like, there's these certain things that are just mine to deal with, that are nobody else's business, that, that are struggles that I'm either embarrassed about or I feel like nobody else has a right to even know or to help me with. There is no, uh, there is no, thing in your life that should be off limits to other Christians. Now, there is wisdom in who should know some of these things. It's not that everybody has to know everything, but we cannot, we don't have the right as Christians to say, I'm just going to do this myself. I'm going to figure this out myself. If you try to do that, it will not happen. Like, you will not grow in God's normal providence in godliness by trying to do it on your own. Without other people knowing about your struggles and helping motivate you towards godliness, it will not happen. So there should be nothing that is off limits. I, I ran across this, again, this short article this week uh, by a pastor I deeply respect named Ray Ortland, uh, where he was talking about three things that are important in any church culture if we're to actually grow in godliness, if we're to actually become the people that God wants us to be. He, he used these, this little math equation. He wrote, that's not an equation really, but he said, gospel plus safety plus time. 
Those are the three things that he said that we need if we're going to become more godly. He said you need the gospel, you need safety, and you need time. And I, I thought that was so poignant for today's text because we need those things. If we're going to help each other to grow in godliness the right way, first we need to tell each other, remind each other of the gospel over and over and over again. The good news that Jesus died for our sins, was raised for our justification, that he's going to return for us. We have to remind each other of that because if we don't, what we are going to become, even if we're serious about helping each other become more godly, is we're just going to become morality police for each other. We're just going to be trying to help uh, just shine up each other's lives as if it all depends on us, as if we are going to be graded someday at the end of our life and we're just trying to earn God's grace. We're trying to earn God's favor, which is an impossibility. I remember, when I, for some reason I had this memory flood back today to my embarrassment. Uh, when I went to Taylor, which is a school similar to Grace, uh, we, as a joke, would try to find the couples that were making out in the dark in cars, like on Friday nights, and like take flashlights, and we called ourselves the morality police. Like, how messed up is that, that we would do that? Like, we, we were not trying to actually help each other to know the grace of Jesus. We were trying to embarrass people into godliness, right? But, and that's such an extreme caricature of things. But we can become, if we don't remind each other of the cross and the resurrection, what we become is like the people with each other uh, just having a flashlight to shine. Like, I can't believe you would do that. Like, you got to do better, man. Like, come on, what is wrong with you? Like, we're almost like shaming and embarrassing each other towards godliness instead of reminding each other of God's character and God's judgment and Christ's sacrifice. We need to remind each other of the good news of Jesus as we're helping each other grow in godliness. So we need gospel, we need safety. Pastor Ortland said we need safety. This is so important. We talk often here about how we have safety with God through Jesus, uh, that, that he has died in our place, been raised for us. We are safe with him if we're united with Christ. But what I'm talking about and what I think Pastor Orland was talking about is that we need to know that there is safety not just with God but with each other. That, that we, if we are all reconciled to God by faith in Christ, we should expect and have and demonstrate a safety with each other. That, that knows, man, you are securely loved by our Heavenly Father and nothing that you can say to me right now about the struggle that you're going through is going to make me turn tail. To, to Nothing is going to make me shame you. Nothing is going to make me embarrass you, turn away from you, look at you like, how could you stoop to that? That we need to know that there is a safety among us as fellow Christians where we can actually be vulnerable or we can actually share about our struggles where we can actually be honest about the sin that's in our life because if we do not demonstrate that practically to each other, guess what we're going to do? We're not going to share our struggles. We're not even going to be open about our ungodliness and that's going to stifle our actual pursuit of godliness. And so we need to believe and know that there's a safety with each other and to act upon that. One of my friends, she actually used to be part of our church years ago named Hannah Anderson. Uh, on Twitter this week, which Twitter's usually not a good aid or help to me, but sometimes it is. So I found some of her thoughts this week to be helpful. She was talking about how oftentimes, especially in like reformed churches, circles like ours, we can be tempting, it can become tempting to just pay lip service to, I'll try to say this, she said it much better, but I'm going to try to consolidate, to just proclaim the general sinfulness of humanity and really, like, say that, I mean, like, yeah, we are depraved, we are fallen, like, we can do no righteousness on our own. And we talk about general sin, 
and we are slow to actually confess specific sin in our own life. That, that we are slow to, to translate that. Yep, we're all sinners, we're depraved, we're fallen, and let that translate and say, but I am saved and forgiven by Christ, and I'm willing to confess, like James 5.16 says, I'm willing to confess my actual sins to you. Like, we need to actually believe the gospel enough to be open with our sin, to be able to confess it to each other, to pray for each other. Uh, we, the gospel should not just teach us to hide our sin, but to confess it, to share it, to be open with it. And you may, if you're someone in a group or a family that struggles to do that, you feel like people are too closed off, they don't share, let that start with you. Like, let yourself be the first person who, it is a risk, yes, but you are willing to confess struggles that you have, ungodliness that you're struggling with. Ask for help, solicit help. And you may be surprised by your willingness to do that. It could be like a domino that triggers others too because they see we can be safe here with each other. We can help each other. We can talk with each other. So we need gospel. We need safety. And then the third thing he said is we need time. As we grow in godliness, we grow more, in God's typical providence, we grow more like trees than like weeds. Uh, we, we, it is usually a slow growth in godliness. And sometimes we become so frustrated with each other or frustrated with ourselves when we just see these like micro levels of growth and we just expect leaps and bounds to come. But we need to be patient with each other, not to just tolerate sin and excuse it, but we need to be patient with each other as we struggle with sin or we return to a sin again. Be patient with each other. Keep Keep calling each other back towards godliness. We need gospel, we need safety, we need time. Side note, we should celebrate, celebrate wins, so to speak, when we see growth and godliness in each other, when we actually see somebody taking steps of obedience in pursuit of holiness. Celebrate that. That is the work of the Spirit of God in that person's life. Shine a light on that. <laughs> like don't, if you want to find something to shine a light on, shine a light on that. Like celebrate that, man. I am so thankful that God is doing that in your life and that you're pursuing godliness. Let's thank him for that and pray for more to come. Like we need to celebrate that when we see it, not just shame it or correct it when we see sin, but to celebrate and to praise God when we see godliness. So we need gospel, we need safety, we need time. I'd actually add a fourth thing real briefly to Pastor Ortland's list, is I think we also, if we're going to grow in godliness, we need to provide examples to each other as part of operating as a family, is we need to see visual examples of people who have grown in godliness. Not just conceptually, but people who've actually put sin to death and grown in righteousness and obedience. And I, I am so thankful to God, especially for the people who are older than me in our church, who are, are living this out, who I'm learning from watching you, observing your growth in godliness and the years and the steps beyond me. And I just want to encourage all of us in our church family to, to remember that we have examples among us to see growth in godliness and that we can be an example to others coming behind us of what godliness actually looks like in real life. In closing, I want to mention this. There's a, a pastor, a bishop actually, in the Anglican Church a while back named J.C. Ryle. And in talking about, writing about holiness, the pursuit of godliness, uh, he, he wrote this. He said that heaven would be a miserable place to an unholy man. Heaven would be a miserable place to an unholy man. And he said, heaven is a holy place. The Lord of heaven is a holy being. The angels are holy creatures. Holiness is written on everything in heaven. And he said, how will we ever be at home and happy in heaven if we die unholy? 
death works no change in our essential character. I would nuance that. But he says, death works no change in our essential character. The grave makes no alteration. Each will rise again with the same character in which he breathed his last. Where will our place be in eternity if we are strangers to holiness now? I thought that was challenging and insightful to think. I think sometimes we believe this like, like yeah, I have, I'm forgiven by Jesus, but no, like godliness, I have no taste for that. I have no desire to pursue godliness or holiness in my life. And his question to you, my question would be to you is, what do you think is going to be different when you die? Like, what do, you, do you really think that you're going to all of a sudden enjoy conversation with Christ? Or Ryle talks about, would you even enjoy talking to Paul or Peter or all the other millions of Christians who've gone before you if you have no taste for the things that God's given them a taste for? Like, if we think that we long for heaven, long to be with God for eternity, there should be signs of that in our life now, that we're starting to love the things he loves. We're starting to hate the things that he hates. We're starting to pursue the things he calls us to pursue. Um, heaven would be a miserable place to an unholy man. But to those of us who have started by God's grace to grow in holiness, grow in godliness, heaven is just going to increase our joy all the more, right? When we get to be with the Lord forever and we don't have worldly passions anymore to turn back to, but holiness to pursue forever. I'm going to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to sing a closing song. Uh, but let's pray together to this God uh, who is holy and who calls us to be holy. Father in heaven, we are thankful as your people to know your character, that you are a holy God, that you, um, there's no mix of impurity with you, but you are pure good. You are the very definition of good. And we know left to ourself, we could not approach you. We cannot enjoy you. We are totally unworthy to come to you, but we are thankful that you sent your son and that we are bought with his precious blood. God, may we want to live lives of holiness. May you give us the will to do so. May you give us perseverance in the pursuit of holiness. And may you bear fruit in our lives and may we help each other bear fruit in our lives. May we be marked by growth and godliness. And we pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.